chapter 4, verse 1. This chapter is primarily a letter. It's one of the very few times that God gives a pagan person an entire chapter to write his own letter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and language groups that live in all the land, peace and prosperity, I am delighted to tell you about the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So this is his letter to his entire kingdom, a kingdom that goes from all the way from the Black Sea all the way down into Egypt, and from the Mediterranean Sea all the way over to the Zagros Mountains. And he's writing this letter to everybody. I want to tell you about the amazing thing that this Yahweh did in my life. Notice he starts by proclaiming that he is the king of the entire empire. But he's going to end the letter by declaring that Yahweh is the king of all of creation. How great are the signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. And his authority continues from one generation to the next. This is his praise. His signs are great. His kingdom will last forever. Is that a change in thinking from chapter 3? Yes. He was presented a statue where his kingdom was temporary and would be replaced by a rock that turned into a mountain that was an everlasting kingdom of God. In chapter 3, he said, Not true. My kingdom will last forever. Now he's saying, Okay, you're right. <laughs> Your kingdom is the one that lasts forever. His authority continues from generation to generation. My authority will die with me. But his authority continues from generation to generation. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was relaxing in my home, living in luxury in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me badly. It's like celebrities during COVID-19. They're like, oh, my life is so horrible as they're swimming in their swimming pools and playing their tennis courts. And we're all like sheltered in truly. And I was frightened badly. The things I imagined were lying on my the things I imagined while I was lying in bed, these visions of my mind were terrifying to me. So I issued an order for all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me so they could be make known to me the interpretation of the dream. It's like again, Nebuchadnezzar. When the magicians, astrologers, and wise men and diviners entered, I recounted the dream for them, but they were unable to make known its interpretations to me. So once again, he goes back to all of his wise men. And he wants to see if they can figure it out, and they can't. But notice, this time, Daniel doesn't say, Hey, I don't want to die. Ask Nebuchadnezzar for more time. Hey, let's pray for the interpretation. This time, when they failed, Nebuchadnezzar then went to Daniel. He sought Daniel out. Later, Daniel entered, whose name was Belteshazzar, after he entered, um, whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods. Now, once again, don't read too much into that as the spirit of Yahweh. He says the spirit of the holy gods, meaning that Daniel is connected to the spiritual realm. I recounted the dream for him as well, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, in whom I know there to be a spirit of the holy gods, and who no mystery baffles, Consider my dream that I saw and set forth its interpretation. Here are the visions of my mind while I was only while I was on my bed. Notice that he has greater confidence than Daniel now. His confidence is far greater. And he is acknowledging that Daniel is able to do what he does because the gods are with him. Or God is with him. While I was watching, there was three in the there sorry, there was a tree in the middle of the land. 
It was enormously tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached the far into the sky. It could be seen from the borders of the land. Its foliage was attractive. Its fruit was plentiful. And on it there was food enough for all. Under the, it the wild animals used to seek shade. And in its branches the birds of the sky used to nest. And all the creatures used to feed themselves from it. So he sees this tree. This tree that is huge and large. And he notices the tree fills the, the world. And every animal and every bird takes shelter under it. This tree is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. That's how it's being portrayed. And trees were often used as symbols of the power or the breath of a kingdom. And that's not an uncommon imagery here. Verse 13. While I was watching in my mind's vision on my bed, a holy sentinel came down from heaven. This sentinel is a watcher. This word watcher is often used in the book of Daniel, and it's also used in this book called the book of Enoch. That's not scripture, but was written by Jews. And the watchers were more like these military sons of God, these military supernatural beings that we would know as angels. It's actually what um, Gabriel and Michael referred to later in this book. He called out loudly as follows, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But the leaf of its taproot in the ground. But leave its taproot in the ground. And with a band of iron and bronze around it, surround by the grass of the field, let it become damp with the dew of the sky, and let it live with the animals in the grass of the land. Let the mind be altered. The angel comes and says, according to the will of God, this tree is going to be cut down, and everything is scattered, and all that will be left is a stump. We've seen that. That was used of Israel. God said, I'm going to cut down the tree and leave it nothing but a stump. But Isaiah also prophesied a new shoot would grow out of that stump and it would continue to grow because God was going to bring Israel back out of exile eventually one day. But notice here, this stump does not have a new shoot that's going to grow. It's going to be bronzed and ironed. What does that mean? A shoot can't grow through metal. The idea is God is cutting down Israel, but he will restore Israel one day because shoots can grow out of that trunk. But if you put an iron band around a tree trunk or on an, or bronze on top, nothing can grow through that. And so there is no coming back from this. And the idea that we'll see later is if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent, his kingdom is done according to the will of God. Israel was far more evil than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was. But God allowed Israel to regrow back because he made an unconditional promise in the Abrahamic covenant that he would always use them. So he can't stop them from growing completely because he's bound by his character and promises to always use them. But he made no such covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. So he can bind them in metal whenever he wants because of its sins and its arrogance and pride. Now the imagery of the tree shifts from a tree to a human being. And so now in the same way the tree is cut down, the idea is that Nebuchadnezzar, the man, is going to be cut down, so to speak. Verse 16, Let his mind be altered from that of a human being, and let an animal's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time go by for him. This announcement is by the decree of the sentinels. 
This decision is by the pronouncement of the holy ones, so that those who are alive may understand that the Most Holy has authority over human kingdoms, and He bestows them on whomever He wishes. He establishes over them even the lowliest of human beings. So Yahweh says, I have shown you my power over and over and over again, and yet you have turned a blind eye to him. You refuse to acknowledge me. You refuse to respond. This way, I am now personally attacking you. Everything that you've trusted in, your own strength, your own knowledge, your own empire is going to be cut down. Yahweh has every desire that people turn to him by just merely seeing the witness of God. However, if you keep refusing to see what God is doing and you refuse to respond to what he is doing, eventually he will break you. And he will break you not because he doesn't care about you and he wants to see you destroyed. He'll break you so that you'll lose everything and realize the only thing you truly have is God. And he's the only one there for you. And so this is what he's doing here. So he's going to strike him down. Verse 18. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation. For none of the wise men in the kingdom are able to make known to me the interpretation. But you can do so, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So this is his dream. This is what's going to happen. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was also Belteshazzar, was upset for a brief time. His thoughts were alarming him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream and its interpretation alarm you. But Belteshazzar replied, Sir, if only the dream were for your enemies and its interpretation applied to your adversaries. The tree that you saw grew large and strong. Now this is interesting. Daniel has become, began to care about him. Knows he is disturbed. And you would expect Daniel to say, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, there's no reason to be disturbed and bothered and upset. Everything will be okay, right? We serve God. Instead, Daniel's disturbed, and Nebuchadnezzar's saying, Hey, don't be too bad. It can't be that bad, right? Like, you don't have to be upset. And Daniel's response is, If only this had been for your enemies and not for you. This is so interesting. Because Nebuchadnezzar is the very man that Daniel should be hating for everything that he's done to him and his home and his life and everything. And yet Daniel has been so invested in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's come to care about him. Even though Nebuchadnezzar is not a godly man, he's that friend that you see more as a ministry than a friend. But he has deeply cared about him. And he's bothered by this. And he doesn't want to see anything bad happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Yet everything in us as a human would say he deserves it. But Daniel doesn't see this way. This is what happens when you get invested in people's lives. They no longer become these one-dimensional bad people. And they start becoming these multi-dimensional complex people who are not motivated by evil desires, but their own brokenness that drives them. And this is where empathy comes in. Verse 20, the tree that you saw that grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and which, and which could be seen in all the land, whose foliage was attractive and his fruit plentiful, and from which there was food available for all, under whose branches wild animals used to live and in whose branches birds of the sky used to nest. It is you, O king, 
For you have become great and strong, and your greatness is such that it reaches to the heavens and your authority to the ends of the earth. As for the king seeing a holy sentinel coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its taproot in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it, surrounded by grass of the field. Let it become a damp with dew of the sky and let it live with the wild animals until seven periods of time go by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decision of the Most High that this has happened to my Lord King. You will be driven from the human society. You will live with the wild animals. You will be fed grass like oxen, and you will become damp with the dew of the sky. Seven periods of time will pass by for you before you understand that the Most High ruler over human kingdoms gives them to whomever he wishes. They said to leave the taproot of the tree, for your kingdom will be restored to you when you come to understand that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing what is right and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps your prosperity will be prolonged. So interpretation is you're going to be reduced. You're going to be given the mind of an animal and you're going to be cut off from society and you will not be restored until you repent. This stump is going to remain ironed and bronzed unless you repent. Then it will be removed. But notice how God actually even prophesies too that seven years is how long it will take. God himself says at the end of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar actually will repent. He will actually turn back. This is what Daniel says. It is determined at the end of seven years you will be restored. But you're only going to be restored if you repent. So the implication is a true conversion is going to happen. A true conversion is going to happen. Every single time that a king or somebody would have a dream that prophesied a horrible fate, or a prophet would come in and prophesy a horrible fate in the ancient antiquities, Every time you see this in documents or court stories or any of that kind of stuff, the magicians would always respond by doing some kind of incantation over them. They would give them some kind of potion to drink or do some kind of like deep skin massage with oils that were coming from the gods or something. They would do some kind of incantation or ritual to remove the bad spirits or auras around this king so that whatever the dream or whatever the prophecy was predicting that would happen would not happen because they're cleansing the aura, so to speak. And none of that negativity is there. That is what you see all the time and everything. Now, I'm not saying that there's not benefits to your health through doing like oils and massages and that kind of stuff, but you can't undo prophecy of bad fates with incantations and rituals and that kind of stuff. Notice Daniel's response. Repent. There's no ritual you can do. There's no oils. There's no incantations. There's no magical phrases to repeat over and over and over again in order to bring a sense of nirvana in your life. There's only repent. Confess your sins. Now notice this is two part. Because the second thing he says is, show mercy to the poor. Remember the prophets we went through? Over and over and over again. 
the prophet said two things to Israel. Give up your idols and turn back to God. Repent. And to love mercy and seek justice according to Micah. Or according to Amos, let righteousness and justice flow out of you like a never-ending river. What do those words mean? It means that I live in a right way with everybody that I encounter around me. That I treat them with love. I treat them with respect. And regardless of who they are or what they do, I live rightly with them and treat them in a righteous way. And then justice is that I actively stop the injustice of the world. Not that I have to go out and fix the world. But when I do come across injustice in my life, I actively defend the weak. And this is what Daniel says. Therefore, O king, may the advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing what is right, righteousness. Live rightly with people and live rightly with God. From your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, perhaps you will prosper. This is Amos. But right living with people and justly defending the poor and the weak and flow out of you. Repent of your sins before God and change your lifestyle with the way that you treat the people in your kingdom and perhaps God will allow you to escape this. Notice Daniel's already made it clear. At the end of seven years, you will. You will come to God. But why do you have to go through those seven years? You could avoid it right now by just repenting. And perhaps God would spare you from that. But Nebuchadnezzar completely ignores it and brags about how awesome he is. All of this, verse 28, happened to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. After 12 months, he happened to be walking around on the battlements of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king uttered these words, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal residence of my own mighty strength and for my majestic honor? Now talk about completely ignoring the warning of the dream. Look how awesome I am. When are you going to learn? Only when he's broken. Verse 31. While these words were still on the king's lips, a voice came down from heaven. It is hereby announced to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. You will be driven from human society and you will live with the wild animals. You will be fed grass like an oxen and seven periods of time will pass for you by, before you understand that the Most High is ruler over the human kingdoms and gives them to whomever he wishes. Now in that very moment, this pronouncement about Nebuchadnezzar came true, and he was driven from human society, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body became damp with the dew of the sky, until the hair became long like an eagle's feathers, and his nails like a bird's claws. Here's what's interesting. This is an actual psychological mental illness. It is a documented illness in the really horrible big all the mental illnesses you could ever have book. And in it, it actually goes by three possible different names. Boanthropy, zooanthropy, or lycanthropy. Bovine is the Greek word for cattle. So anthropos is the Greek word for man. So it's the cow man. And the zooanthropy is the animal man. And the lichen is the word for wolf or dog, so it's the dog man. Basically what we think of as werewolves, right? 
Now, don't, <laughs> I'm not saying he turned into a werewolf. What I'm saying is this. There's a scholar by the name of R.K. Harrison who lived around 1946. And he went around to different mental institutions. And he actually documented a couple cases in mental institutions where people were truly convinced that they were an animal. And they lived like an animal. They actually went around on all fours, walking around all day like they were an animal. And there was also a little bit of a mind over matter where they actually began to grow hair out on their body. Not like totally like a werewolf, like totally like a nice coat you've got there. It came in really even. But just hair started growing a little bit longer and more patchy around the body that had never been there before. And not only that, we know that we cannot eat grass. Like, that is not good for humans. It's not even good for, like, dogs and cats. Like, the reason they eat grass is they have upset stomachs and they're trying to get themselves to throw up. But cows can. And these humans actually began to eat grass and they were able to live on it. And the, the people who ran the mental institution basically said that if it hadn't been for them taking care of the humans by forcing them to wear clothes and trimming their nails and forcing them to actually sit down, it, is, it took everything they had to keep this person from acting like an animal and ripping their clothes off and just going around. And it was an actual documented mental illness. And according to him and a lot of research that he did in these mental institutions, this is actually more common than what we even realize. In the ancient world, we don't have a whole lot of document, documentation of this, but in the medieval period, scientists started actually documenting things better. And there was actually documentation of this, where there were people actually believed that they were like this in cases where mind over matter actually began to grow their hair. It might be a little bit where we get the werewolf mythologies from. That a lot of this stuff is rooted in truth, but then it's overly mythologized and exaggerated in our stories. The reason we don't see this often anymore is because by the 1600s, the, the world of psychology began to change its practices. They used to just let people with mental illness wander around the streets of England or whatever, just willy-nilly, and you would see this stuff more often. It was in the 1600s that they started carting them off to actual mental institutions so they, their mental illness became less publicly aware or the, the public became less aware of it. And then it wasn't until really the 1900s that the way that we treated the people in the mental institutions became more human, more humane-like. And so the, the, the cases of these people actually looking and acting like animals reduced drastically by the 1600s because now they were being taken care of and forced to kind of act and dress like a human. And so this is a well-documented psychological illness that people have had that proves that this is actually possible to a certain extent. And during the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was out of it. Now, some people say, why isn't this in the historical records of the Babylonians? Well, because there's a lot of things that are not in the records. Like, remember, there are so many things that we don't know because of those paper documents, paper doesn't survive very long underground buried in the dirt, okay, or in pottery. And remember, we can't dig up the whole world because lots of people are living in these places. And you just can't say, hey, for the sake of proving this disease, get out of your home. We're going to tear it down because just maybe there's something under there. You can't do that. And so there's a lot that we don't know. Likewise, kings never 
had things that made themselves look bad recorded in history. We never see anything. The only time we ever learn anything bad about an empire is when another empire writes that. And then we have to ask the question, how accurate is this? Or are they just mudslinging on them and exaggerating it? So this is the problem. You know we're not going to find a historical record of this because it's just the way they think. And likely, there's a good chance that because Daniel has been promoted as the great, the, the, the highest, most respected advisor in the kingdom, this just shows you how much God has taken care of Nebuchadnezzar. Because the minute this happened, all the people vying for his throne would immediately seek to assassinate him. I mean, right? We've seen this even in England and France. The minute kings start going mad or looking bad, assassinations around the corner from even your own brother or even your own son. And the fact that Nebuchadnezzar can go seven years without anybody assassinating him and he gets his kingdom back is just a testament to God taking care of him because ultimately God doesn't want him destroyed. God wants him to convert. And it also says that probably Daniel was taking care of him. And maybe he didn't go to the full extent of being a wild animal like pre-1600s because Daniel was humane enough to actually take care of Nebuchadnezzar during that time and capable enough to keep the empire going and running it himself in some kind of way. Now that's a total guess right there, but most likely there's enough advisors that could keep the kingdom going with Nebuchadnezzar out of the picture, so to speak. Verse 34, by the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven, and my sanity returned to me. I extolled the Most High, and I praised and glorified the One who lives forever. For His authority is an everlasting authority, and His kingdom extends from one generation to the next, and all the inhabitants of the earth are re regarded as nothing. He does as He wishes with the army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps His hand and says to Him, What have you done? Now, that's an interesting thing. Nobody treats God like a child. At that time, my sanity returned me, and I was restored to my honor of my kingdom, and my splendor returned to me. My ministers and my nobles were seeking me out, and I was reinstituted over my kingdom. I, become, I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify King of heaven, for all his deeds are right, his ways are just, he is able to bring down those who live in pride. Now notice there's a huge change in Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. One, God says that the only way he can be restored is if he repents, truly repents. Obviously he was restored, therefore he obviously repented. But remember, notice that he's always motivated people with fear. I'm going to burn you in the furnace. I'm going to tear down your house and use the logs from the house to kill you and impale you. Like, do this. Worship me or I'll impale you. Worship Yahweh or I'll impale you. He has always used his power to motivate people with the fear of death to do the right thing that he thinks is the right thing. Here, notice that he uses his power of his testimony to persuade people that Yahweh is king. Never in this chapter does he threaten death if they don't turn to God. He is actually writing a letter where he gives his testimony, makes a valid argument for Yahweh, gives the signs and the evidence for why this is true, and then persuades, calls, urges people to turn to Yahweh. And this is where you drastically see a change in Nebuchadnezzar. He's always wielded his power over life and death. 
to persuade people. Now he's using the power of his life, his testimony, his words to persuade people. And this is the huge change you see in him. So these two things and the third thing in chapter 7, we're going to see the winged lion that's acting like a beast. And it's going to, we're told that it's Nebuchadnezzar. And it's going to stand up on two legs like a human. Its legs are going to be ripped, or sorry, its wings are going to be ripped off so it no longer is this mutated animal. And then it's going to be given a new heart. Whenever you see the phrase new heart used in the Bible, it means genuine conversion. All throughout the prophets, we read this when we went through the prophets. The prophets said that in that day, when I make a new covenant with you, the covenant that Jesus Christ makes, I will give Israel a new heart, and I will put my spirit in you. Moses says in Deuteronomy, your hearts are evil and wicked, and only when they are circumcised and become new will you actually be able to love God. Jeremiah picks up on that and says that too. And then when we get to the Romans, Paul says that we are being given a new heart or our hearts, our minds, because the heart and the mind were seen as the same in the Greek world, the renewing, the transforming of your mind. And we're a new creature in Christ. The idea of being given a new heart that is circumcised by the Holy Spirit and is no longer dead and hard is always an imagery of a true life change conversion. And so between the fact that God says he will not be restored unless he repents, and he did, the fact that he uses his persuasion and power differently, and the fact that he's said to have a new heart in chapter 7, says that Nebuchadnezzar has become a believer. And I'm really truly convinced that he is in the kingdom of God and will be for eternity. And what's amazing about this is this is one of the most pagan, evil men of human history who literally made everything in his empire and every minute about himself. And he executed people only because they did not obey him over frivolous, nitpicky things. And every time he proclaims God, it seems totally ingenuine and totally a farce. And yet little by little by little, God kept working. Daniel stayed committed. Daniel loved him despite that. He never shamed him. He never rebuked him. I mean, yelling, screaming, rebuking. He never demonized him. He stayed true to him to the point that he actually loved Nebuchadnezzar and cared about what was going to happen to him. The man that you would think is totally unlovable, the narcissistic, bloodthirsty guy who kills people for his own power, and Daniel loved him. In the end, he converted We have been called to be in the world, not of the world. And these stories are perfect examples of men who refuse to compromise and act like the culture, yet they also refuse to demonize the culture and condemn it. And in that process, they love the culture and they transform some of what we would think the most untransformable people. This is what it means to be the people of God. And this is what I will say. This is what I tell my students. In the end, these issues that we're dealing with, COVID-19, Democratic Party, Republican Party, the, the racism, the whatever thing 
that you think is so worth yelling and screaming at people or the thing that you know that that shouldn't be the way you respond but you're still angry in the inside believe me i feel it there's sometimes i'm just like this is dumb and why are they there and i just want to what god is calling us to is to act differently we are not to live in fear of what can be done to us because we have god who watches over us we are not to live in anger because god is in control And we have a spirit of love in us. We are to act in wisdom and love. Because at the end of the day, this will eventually pass. Yes, maybe a new issue will come along because we live in a fallen world. But eventually these things will pass. And when we're no longer sheltering in place and isolated from each other, we come back. Will you actually have friends to come back to? Will you yell and scream at people for wearing masks? because they're evil and trying to kill everybody? Are you yelling and screaming at people because they're wearing masks because they've bought into some bogus carpet thing and they're just lambs being led to the slaughter? Or are you going to yell at them because they're not wearing masks and they're breathing death on everybody to kill them all? And then in the end, when we're no longer dealing with this, we have no friends. We have no testimony. We have no witness. And no one will respect anything about us because we've lost our testimony. Believe me, I... I know the anger. Whatever side you're on, there are things to be angry about. There are injustices. I feel it. And sometimes when I'm lying in my bed with my wife, it's like, ah. But we always try to end by praying for our leaders and praying that we will be different and the Spirit will take over because that's what we've been called to. Because at the end of the day, we are called to be different and we are called to love. And when this all passes, the world needs to see us being different. They need to see hope in us. They need to see when everybody was angry and yelling, we were loving people. When everybody was completely filled with fear, we had hope. And when everybody was shaming each other, we were loving. And then that's when they say, what makes you so different? And we say, even if we die of this disease, or even if this government we don't like comes in, we know that God can change it and bring revival. But we know if he doesn't, we still follow God and we will act differently and we are different because our hope is not in this world. And eventually, that attitude, that behavior will transform the culture. And it will bring a revival. And I don't know if it will be in my lifetime or my girls, but it will come. But it will not come if we act like the world. If we give in to the fear, give in to the anger, And we just lose all hope and wisdom. That's what we've been called to, to act differently.